Almost 25 years ago, and in this very street, a group of school kids were regularly playing to packed houses in a small, seedy nightclub that I'm now standing outside. And despite the fact they were causing a commotion all those years ago, neither they nor their fans had any idea then that 20 years later they would have achieved something little short of international superstardom. And how distinctive that music was, even in those days. Yes, the Beatles. Four musicians who must have received every accolade that exists to receive and whose story is well-known throughout the world therefore need no retelling. But not a hundred yards from this spot in another less prestigious nightclub known as the Tavern, another group searching for stardom was developing its own peculiar brand of music. <laughs> Yes, the unmistakable sound of Dobbin, Norris and Gary Cribb, better known as the heebie-jeebies. Quite simply, the most successful pop phenomenon in the history of modern music, the contemporary arts, and of course, pop phenomena. Megalithic. No other word readily springs to mind when one thinks of the lifelong success of the heebie-jeebies. Even such words as epic, gargantuan, or existential barely come anywhere near describing accurately the influence these three brothers have had on the pop music world. Great, extensive, or very large indeed, in a similar way, simply don't cover half of it. And as for major, sizable, or pretty damn big, well, you can just leave them out altogether. But how did it all start? We asked the boys themselves. Dunno. Dunno. No idea. And it is with the same self-effacing humility that they approach their work as they seek to produce that inimitable heebie-jeebie sound. But how come that extraordinary name, the heebie-jeebies? Gary? Well, when we were small, we had a dog, a spaniel it was, called Hebe, you see. And around that time, we used to uh, always have baked beans for tea, which we called BBs. Well, Dom at that time had a speech impediment because of his uh, front teeth and used to call them GBs, you see. And one day, our, our uncle was around visiting us and, and the dog, Hebe, had stolen a plate of beans, BBs, or, or GBs, as Dobbin called them. And our uncle, who's a teacher or something, quick as a flash, said, here, if you ever grow up and become a pop group, why don't you call yourselves the Crib Brothers? Years later, however, Gary himself, realising they were all brothers and called Crib, hit upon the name of the Heebie-Jeebies, and somehow... The name just stuck. And now it's the hallmark of one of the wealthiest groups in the world. But it wasn't always like that. Their mother, Annie Cribb, now a successful masseuse, remembers the early days vividly. She explains why. It's because I have an excellent memory. I'm always able to remember things like that. But why do you remember those days so particularly? It's a gift, I suppose. I've always had it. Yes, but what I mean is, what do you remember of them? Oh, they were bad times then. Ah, now, why do you remember them as being bad? Well, it's this memory of mine. Just never forget. Like an elephant, me. <laughs> but your children, Annie, what about them? Oh, yes, well, they were called Gary, Dobbin and Norris. Gary was the eldest? Oh, yes, I've not forgotten. The other two were younger, you see. But what do the boys themselves remember of their childhood? From the very outset, seen very much by their parents as their birth, the twins shared an uncanny telepathy. Norris explains how it worked. Um, even when we were apart, you know, in, in separate rooms, or even sometimes when we were in different houses, um, we both know exactly what day it was. But what of the Cribb family, and in particular the boys' ancestors? 
Well, no great musicians, it seems, but Dobbin, being the youngest, was named after his grandfather, George Cribb, whose outstanding determination and courage he's only too happy to have inherited. He recalls here a famous story told to him about his grandfather. Yeah, well, apparently it was in the Ardennes near the German border, I believe, in the middle of winter, and my granddad was armed only with a bayonet, and but he's reported to have killed over 30 Germans with his own bare hands. Sadly, this was in 1904, some ten years before the outbreak of World War I, and he was shot by a firing squad in a Berlin prison some weeks later. One man who remembers George Cribb, and indeed has known Gary and the twins all their lives, is Roger Daly, a close friend of the family. I spoke to Roger at his stall in North London and asked him how gifted the boys were as children. Someone else who remembers the boys in those early days is Mr. John Tucker Simpson, headmaster of Macclesfield County High School for Boys and formerly Brain of Britain, 1972. We went to the school to speak with him. Mr. Tucker Simpson. Call me John. Oh, very well. Uh, John. Tucker Simpson. Uh, John Tucker Simpson, what do you remember of the Crib Brothers? What do I remember about the Crib Brothers, are you asking me? Uh, yes. A touch recalcitrant, to speak true. Recalcitrant? A reticent, sullen, obstreperous, slow to come forward. Adjective from the Latin calx, meaning heel. I see. Uh, were they in any way different to the other children? Were they in any way different from the other children, you wish to know? Yes. Gary, as I recollect, was rather ebullient. A brilliant what? No, ebullient. Effervescent. Exuberant. Pertaining to that which boils. Next. Oh, well, I was going to ask you about the two twins, Norris and Dobbin. How many twins? The two twins. Twin, noun, singular, meaning one of two persons born at birth together. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, the twins, then, how would you describe them? They were little bastards. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Tucker Simpson, for talking to us. Very kind of you. Talking to whom? To us. How many people are there in the room? Uh, just the two of us. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Say it. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me. Don't mention it. It was around the time the boys started school that they began singing and making their own music. Norris wrote one of their earlier hits, Worms, to commemorate his fifth birthday. And Dobbin penned the later million-selling single, now I found that the earth is round, understandably just after his first geography lesson. Tracing the early life of the Brothers Crib has taken me to many unusual places, but no more so than here, the sleepy village of Lower Titherington, and more precisely, to its parish church. For it was here the boys first flexed their vocal cords in the choir. The then curate, and now rector, remembers them. Ah, yes, delightful, sweet boy. Ah, oh, I am sorry, I didn't see you down there. Ah, yes, must be careful not to tread on the brass bubbles. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, if I recall, they were the most enthusiastic choristers, always trying out new, exciting things. Sometimes, I must say, they went a bit too far. Looking back, I regret allowing them to pick the hymns for one Easter Sunday service. Yes, I don't think the Archbishop was overpleased when I announced that we would now sing hymn number 143, Bebop, Alula, She's My Baby. 
but then the Archbishop was never really into pop. More of a Connie Francis man. Yes, quite. But, but don't you think it rather extraordinary that budding pop stars should have begun their singing life in a, in a church choir? No, not really. You know, I, not so long ago I spoke about this very subject with that awfully nice chap, Cliff Richard, when he came here to open the church souvenir supermarket over here, next to the front. And, and what did he say? Oh, you know, the usual. I, I hereby open this supermarket. No, 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 I mean about the pop star and the choir boy. Oh, you know, I haven't heard that one. Would you like to buy a pack of just playing cards? After the interview, the rector kindly sold me this rather astonishing recording of the young cribs actually singing in the choir. Even then, they had something quite different. But it was also around this time, with the twins, aged five and six respectively, that their father took part in a local community raffle organised by their neighbours and won five one-way tickets to New Zealand. They sought much advice as to what to do with the tickets, but everyone they spoke to urged them to make use of them. And it was there, within three months of the move, the three boys had made the first important decision in their lives. Gary, or boss, as he preferred to be called then, decided it was time to release their first number one hit record and become national celebrities. This they did one Tuesday afternoon, and by 10.30am the next morning, the record was number one in 89 countries of the world and number seven in Belgium. It seemed incredible, but it was true. Computers were checked and they confirmed this low position in the Belgium charts. Flemish distribution was questioned. But the worldwide recognition of the group meant they found it increasingly difficult to remain in the relatively primitive and essentially agricultural community of New Zealand. We talked to Ozzy Bernhardt, managing director of Boomerang, the boys' recording company in those days, at their chief office in Wellington. Well, what with all this worldwide success and that, the boys were really crying all the time. And looking at themselves, I think they felt they were too big for us to handle. Keep still, you bugger! Uh, so, so what, what did you do? Well, uh, oh, jeez, look, we, we looked at it philosophically. Hold this, will you? Uh, oh, of course, yeah. Sure, yeah, what we say here is if your sheep grow too large for your fields, you either kill them or sell them to someone who's got fields large enough to take them. So what you're saying is you sold out? No, we try to kill them. Keep still for pitch kill, sake. Kill them? Yeah, but, but that's against the law, apparently. Can you, uh... Oh, all right. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's illegal to kill pumps in this country, evidently. So, uh, we, we did the other thing. You sold out? Yep, sold a bugger. And do you feel any bitterness towards them that they, that they wanted to move on? Bitter? No, I didn't feel bitter towards them. Just hated them, that's all. That fits. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. Hit a wipe off, I think. 
Due to a personal friction, then, that the boys felt existed in the record company, made particularly evident during the assassination attempts, the heebie-jeebies, by now a household name in New Zealand, and in the Fiji Islands, where the word actually means a liquid gumption, flew to London for a series of concerts, eager to compete for the attention of the British public with such pop legends as The Beatles, The Stones, Freddie and the Dreamers and the like, a new band which, in fact, never made it. Meanwhile, the boys were arriving at Heathrow. Well, it was incredible. I mean, we hardly expected the tarmac to be full of screaming teenagers. And was it? No, but then we hardly expected it. An inauspicious beginning. But soon the boys were earning rave reviews from the music press for their stage appearances. Absolutely fab, said one critic. I've never seen fabber, said another. A man who worked with them on all their live shows is one of the country's top audio electricians, Mike Channel. Yeah, well, I've worked with all the big bands on Floyd, Zap, Crow, Ab, but the Heaps were by far the loudest band, uh, and they just sent everybody wild. And how many people would you say turned out at the concert? Well, my job was to stand right in front of the speakers and check the sound levels, you see, before the gig started. That is. Uh, yeah, but how many people were there generally? <laughs> of course, after a while, you got used to the noise, although at first it was a bit much. What's what sort of crowds did you get, Mike? Yeah, pleasure. Cheers. So, with the heebie-jeebies now firmly established as one of the leading groups of the 60s, how were they coping with the fruits of pop stardom? One man who was an intimate of the boys during that period and a close friend of Norris in particular was former lead singer with the Ferry Beats, now successful garage manager, Wayne Dakota. Oh, boy, right, yeah. I mean, just, you know, really mad things like, you know, we used to do really mad things all the time. You know, Norris would ring me and say, hey, Wayne, let's go out and do something really mad, you know. <laughs> like, anything in particular? Hey. Oh, no, no, it was just all the time, like, you know, me and Norris would go out and see Rod, and we'd all go off and do something really mad, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. I remember one time we were all there, you know, me, Norris, Rod. Yes. <laughs> what happened? Well, you know, we all got together, like, you know, with some chicks and lots of booze and, you know, a dog, like, you know, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we just <laughs> really did mad things, you know. Why? I don't know, must have been mad. I asked the heebie-jeebies if they had any particular memories of that wild period in the late 60s. No, no. Norris? Yeah, yeah, well, uh, Wayne Decoulter, former lead singer with the Ferry Beats and now a successful garage manager and me, would go and do really mad things, you know, with... Uh... Yes, yes, we've, we've already spoken to him. Oh. Now, was it not during this time that you started experimenting with drugs? Oh, yeah. You in particular, uh, you had a bad drugs problem. Yeah, 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 I did, yeah. Would you like to talk about it? Um, yeah, um... Well, it, it it all began at a really wild party at Wayne Dakota's place. We, we've covered that, I think. Ah, oh, right. Well, um, right. Well, it, it's the old story, really. A, a lot of people were smoking, and I, I just joined in. I mean, I must have smoked and sniffed all night, but just didn't have any effect on me. And this was your drugs problem? Yeah, yeah. I, I tried every kind of thing, you know, uh, Lebanese black, Afghanistan red. Uh, I even tried the Caribbean blue. That's strong, is it? No. It's a type of budgie. You see how desperate I was? And with the acquisition of fame and fortune came also the taste for riches. And it wasn't long before the brothers' crib had bought a country estate in the home counties from fellow pop star Cliff Richard. Cliff himself was awaiting a, a mortgage for a 400-acre farm he wanted to buy from singer Billy Fury, who was renting the accommodation from which the heebie-jeebies had just moved, but which was being sold to Sonny and Sher, who had previously sold the estate to Cliff and were awaiting a mortgage for Billy Fury's first farm which had originally been Cliff's estate. 
As a result of these transactions, Cliff had unfortunately paid over £500,000 for his own house. Increasingly, the newspapers and radio stations had become interested in the brothers' private lives, which were centering around their respective wives. Norris had married Zulu, a black Glaswegian singer. But while Dobbin had no difficulty in finding his wife, a childhood sweetheart, Cynthia Cribb Slipon, Gary, or Sir, as he preferred to be known as, was still holding interviews for his. But it was Norris's short-lived romance that really caught the public eye as the news of his split-up with Zulu made headlines in every national newspaper. Isn't life weird? That split-up, however, reflected much more than just personal unrest. It seemed to epitomise a growing desire within the brothers themselves to, as Gary puts it... Go our own way. For himself, Gary, or God as he now liked to be known, began by co-producing his first solo album entitled Gary Alone. This was followed only a month later by Dobbin's first LP... Just Dobbin, and Norris's Only Norris. And in the next year, there were to be released the follow-up albums, Gary Alone Again, Still Just Dobbin, and Only Norris On His Own Once More. But these curiously never made the album charts, although they each had hits with singles taken from the albums, Gary with Solitude, Dobbin with Isolation, and Norris with the now classic Quarantine. Ha, 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 I feel so alone. Why is it cause I'm a Gary's production work was bringing him into contact with a good many young groups whose careers he did his best to launch. Although the success of his attempts, it must be admitted, was limited. A tape of a recording session he did with one such group shows the difficulties he encountered. How I love you, baby. You're so good to me. If I could have you, baby. Would mean so much to me. Uh, hold it there, fellas. Um, doesn't sound right somehow. Uh, try doing it a bit more staccato. Don't let it flow so much. All right. Four. How I love you, baby. You're so good to me. If I could no, have no, you, no, back. it's still not sounding how I want it. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Try it a bit higher, fellas. Higher. Yeah. All right. Three. Four. How I love you, baby. Yeah, better. Uh, can you change the line to Ah, how I love you, baby? And fellas, can you hold your noses while he's singing? All right. All right. Two, three. Ah, how I love you, baby. You're so good to me. Yeah, great. And so the three cribs continued, each trying to prove to a sceptical public, to each other, and most importantly, perhaps, to themselves, that they could make it on their own. No one knows now quite why they did split up. But fortunately for Gary, Dobbin and Norris, old sister fate, in the form of a wealthy Australian impresario, was smiling on them. The now world-famous revival of the heebie-jeebies through the efforts of the equally infamous Robert Stigwig was shortly to be underway. What does Mr Stigwig remember of the first time he met the Crib brothers? Well, I took one look at these four lads. Uh, three, was it? Was it? Well, at these three lads then, and I thought, here were four men, firm, gutsy. I saw in them a rare spark of creativity, of originality. Yes. Uh, so I got rid of that and, hey, presto, international superstars. Would you welcome, please, Morris Dobbin and Gary Cripp. Yes, the sensational three and only, TV TV. Woo! 
first effect of Stigwig's influence was seen, of course, in the emergence of the new sound. A track from their album, dedicated to their homeland and entitled Children of the Wirral, serves as an excellent example. The creation of this sound was neither easy nor cheap. But what exactly was the secret behind it? Um, a lot of practice, you know, tight harmonies. Tight voice control. And uh, tight trousers. Oh, and the clamps. disco feel about their music was soon to pay dividends, as for their next album they were asked to write the soundtrack of the sensationally successful film musical Friday Evening Disease. Ever since then, the heebie-jeebies story has really been history, with one great hit following another. But it was the hits from the multi-million selling Evening Disease album that really started it all off. Staying Awake, Chai Talking, How Deep Is Your Mouth, and their follow-up, Water Having Passed, had gone platinum within 90 seconds of its release. were going well for the Brothers Crib. Almost as it seemed too well. For despite the great fortune they'd found under the management of Robert Stigwig, the three brothers suddenly woke up one morning to read in their newspapers that they were suing him for just over $300 million. Within days, the two parties were involved in one of the biggest legal battles in American history. In an attempt to fathom out the exact causes for their respective grievances, we invited the two chief lawyers representing each side to talk to us about it. One by a satellite from Chicago, and the other here in London. Okay, so uh, if we begin with uh, with you, Mr. Slater, can can you hear me all right? Uh, hello, Mr. Uh, Burnett. Uh, yeah, I am receiving your good self uh, loud and clear. Okay, um, we're trying to clarify the position, Mr. Slater. Uh, yeah. You, on behalf of the Robert Stigwig organization, are suing the heebie-jeebies pop group for $400 million dollars on grounds which, as yet, you've not decided upon. Uh, that is correct. A and Mr. Armstrong, you, in turn, are suing Mr. Stigwig on behalf of the heebie-jeebies for $500 million for reasons which, for the moment at least, you you've forgotten. Yes, indeed. Uh, did he just say $500 million? Uh, yes, he did, Mr. Slater. Well, uh, having given the matter careful consideration, I will, in fact, be advising my client to sue for $600 million. $600 million? Uh... So that's 100 more than Mr. Armstrong's lawsuit, which is for 500 million. Uh, that was excluding legal costs. Oh, I see. Now, uh, that amounts to um, how much? Uh, $200 million. What was that? What did he say? Uh, he said uh, that the legal costs he would be demanding would amount to $200 million. What? That makes uh, $700 million in all, is that right? Uh, that is correct. What? 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 What he saying? What? What? I broke The case still continues. Nevertheless, despite all these material perks, mansion homes in Nevada, an income exceeding many millions of dollars, 
the most important aspect of the boys' lives, as they will tell you themselves, has always been their music. Dobbin? The most important aspect of our lives has always been our music. And where does the inspiration, the stimulation to write songs, come from? Norris? I think in my case it stems from a feeling I remember experiencing when I was young. I mean, I looked around me and all I saw was poverty and misery and I thought, I don't want any of this. I want to be rich. But love, you say, is always the foremost thing in your songs. Oh, yes. I mean, despite all our success, uh, we love the simple things in life. Uh, mountains, rivers, lakes. And that's why we bought so many. And that's the secret, I think. Always having what you want, when you want it, and being rich enough to afford it. Oh, and getting your own way. The simple, homely philosophy of the Crib Brothers that tells all. But when their lives are being recalled by others in the future, how would they like to be remembered by posterity? Family men. Warm men. Musical geniuses, that's all. Suffice to say, the birth of these three musical giants stands as one of the most significant post-war events to have occurred in this country. then does the world owe to the music of the heebie-jeebies? How large is our debt? Clearly enormous is not the word, nor indeed would gargantuan be, or epic, or existential. But that's another story. And then a little spring Heebie-jeebies story was presented by Paul Burnett with Helen Atkinson-Wood, Robert Bathurst, Angus Deaton, Michael Harry, David Jackson-Young and Philip Pope, who also wrote the music. Additional material from David Jackson-Young. The programme was written by Angus Deaton and the producer, Jimmy Mulville.